Hello, and welcome to the Mage the Hero Described podcast. No overproduced intro, no song, nothing to wade through, just talking mage and related Matt Wagner stuff. This is the show for fans and readers of Matt Wagner's Mage comic series. I'm your host, Kevin Hawkins, and in this episode, I'll be reviewing issue number seven of Mage 3, The Hero Denied. Before I get into this issue, a spoiler warning. If you haven't read this issue or any of the past Mage comic series, I promise that I'm going to totally spoil this issue and parts of past issues from Hero Discovered and Hero Defined completely and totally. Now, I was uh, I was just in New York City this uh, last weekend, well, weekend before last, and gave a quick shout-out on Instagram to see what Mage fans were in the area. And to my surprise, artist Ben Granoff was in the area. Ben runs a site called picturesforstories.com, where you can read a really absorbing comic preview of his take on H.P. Lovecraft's The Dunwich Horror. Or the, and uh, he has a really unique art style that suits the subject matter. And you know, I went over there looking at it curiously and just found myself swept up by it immediately. You just take a glance and the next thing you know, you are just neck deep, pages deep in the story. Also in town was Eli from the Can I Thwip It podcast, and we'll talk about Can I Thwip It later. And also in town was Kevin Borchard, also known on Instagram as Booster Gold NY, and he runs the Stars and Sins cosplay page on Facebook. I'll put links to all these uh, sites in the show notes and on the website. If I had a bit of forethought and had a little bit more time, it would have been uh, cool to try and coordinate a uh, short mage fan get-together podcast, but it it just wasn't in the cards. Anyways, it was neat to uh, it was neat to see mage fandom out and around uh, out and about and around the city. Anyways, on to the issue, and <laughs> what an issue this is! I mean, wow, it's like a firecracker going off, boom! But we'll get to that soon enough. In addition to being a real game changer. This is also an issue where Kevin has a number of accidents or misfortunes befall him, each of them each of them uh, significantly impacting the story. I call them oops moments. Now, as with issue number six, we pick up right where we left off. Kevin is off hunting a questing beast that he can track thanks to the aid of some magical eye drops that he obtained at uh, Heavy Jefferson's magical this and that magic shop and other sundry items. It is now late, late, late at night, and he is miles from downtown in the city's rose gardens, which bear a distinct, in fact, a precise resemblance to the Portland Rose Garden, which is fitting since that is Matt Wagner's stomping grounds. Still, narratively, you have to wonder what's going on here with Kevin. He has been getting more and more distracted from his family. He's been champing at the bit, as it were. Like, he loves his family, but he comes across as he's constrained, he's caged, he's, he's discontent, and we can see it from his facial expressions. And at times we also see it in a very, what comes across as a combative tone and body language in some of his back and forths with his wife, Magda. Now, this isn't to say that Kevin doesn't love his family. We've seen enough to know that he loves his family. He's a, a supportive, demonstrative father. He's a loving husband. But here again, 
He has completely forgotten, just spaced a family obligation. Last time, he totally zoned out on picking Hugo up from the bus after school. And this time, he has totally blown off an evening event with Magda at the school where she teaches. And like Sir Pelinor from Arthurian myth, who is known for his dogged pursuit of the questing beast, Kevin seems... He's almost like under a spell. He is obsessed with the promise that he sees in the appearance of the questing beast, that it's going to lead him on to the next stage of, of, of his heroic identity, give his life meaning. And the artwork of the garden here is really, it's something to enjoy. Even at night, with all the roses in full bloom, Kevin surmises the beast must live here coming and leaving by night, maybe when it can avoid tourists and visitors. And again, we can see the desperation on Kevin's face as he's thinking out loud, you know, will this finally lead him to the Fisher King? That it must, since the questing beast only appears to those on a mystical quest, and since Joe Fat is certainly not on any mission who was with him when he, he saw the questing beast, that its appearance must be meant for him. Now, as the mystical eye drops wear off, and Kevin eventually follows the tracks but but loses them, and um, and he follows the noise of the beast deeper into the gardens, where he finally sees it. He catches up with it. In the meantime, we return to Magda and Creepster McSlimy, and she plays ignorant about him calling her a witch as she rummages through her purse. But this guy seems to know a lot about witches, from those who use magic unknowingly to full-fledged practitioners like Magda. And interestingly, he says that the former, those who use magic without knowing, are just flavorless, and the latter, full-fledged practitioners, are just succulent. And at this point, Magda blows some pinkish-purple dust into his face, which he identifies as bewilderdust, saying that it would have worked wonders if he was human. And at this point, he grabs her by the throat and lifts her in the air, and we are right back into horror movie mode here again, into horror mode. Um, again, out of all the mage books, this one... Has, has one of the most nods to what feels like classic horror. His eyes have gone totally white, his grin looks positively evil, and he throws her into the boiler room for some privacy, And because, you know, schools, horror, boiler rooms, everything happens in boiler rooms. Anyways, he tears through her defenses. Her charm bracelet is no good. A spoken hex that she tries to get out does nothing, and a familiar-looking sharp tube extends from under his tongue as vampire style he bites into her neck into her shoulder neck area and feeds and this next page is just great from the old school dracula vampire style pose swooning female and all to the blank look on his face and the muted whoa after taking his first drink the vampire an incubus in fact sharing that same sublingual feeding tube as the succubuses we've seen in Hero Defined and, and Hero Discovered. And he says that 
Magna is just full of surprises. This scene, though terrible in what it means for one of our main characters, is really amazing. And while Magda is eventually overpowered, it's certainly not without her fu- without a fight. Unfortunately, her charms and magics are just no match for the vampiric superintendent. But before we can learn what he's talking about, what blew his mind, we return to Kevin in the Rose Garden. Now, Kevin has caught up with the questing beast, and in the shadows, he sees what looks like a small-robed child petting its snout. It's a very peaceful moment, and one which sets the stage for Kevin's first oops moment in the issue, when Kevin steps on a twig, breaking the silence. And we see the child is in fact a little purple devil with horns and a forked tongue. In fact, Kevin will later identify this as an imp, and the imp has the most interesting reaction to seeing Kevin Matchstick, crying out, No! Fulmination! Conflagration! Inferno! Inferno! And then the imp leaps onto the swirling questing beast, and the two just take off with the imp riding on the back of the beast, just leaving Kevin eating their dust, who's looking more, even more frustrated and, and desperate. So, I don't know, we've literally got a devil in the Rose Garden, which at least seems to be a nod to Hunter Rose and Grendel, Wagner's own devil, if you will. It is worth noting that if this comic takes place around the spring of 2000 in this fictional universe, Matt Wagner himself was neck deep in Grendel around this time. Mage 2, the hero defined, had completed its run, and Grendel, Devil's Legacy, was in re-release and would continue monthly releases until early 2001. And uh, Devil's Legacy is the story of Christine Spar and her incarnation as Grendel, the first 10 or 12 issues, as it were, of the Grendel monthly comic book. Uh, Grendel Black, White, and Red was also soon to be released in August 2000. So... There was a lot of Grendel going on at the time. As far as all of this talk about fires, fire, um, you know, first of all, fulmination is a fierce protest, which the imp could be seen as just voicing, but it's also a violent explosion or flash like lightning, and that sounds a lot like Kevin's power. I mean, he does have a lightning bolt on his chest. He does charge things up with a white lightning-like power. And a conflagration is a destructive fire. And an inferno, aside from its, you know, literary hellish connotations, is a large fire that is out of control. So maybe this imp sees something in Kevin, either his potential or near future. Waliat used to call Kevin Foxfire. A Foxfire is also known as Fairy Fire. That's a bioluminescence created by some species of fungi that's present in decaying wood. Now, it's fair to say, I think at least, that this nickname might have been a bit of a sidelong commentary about Kevin's path in the hero defined maybe not being in alignment with his overall quest, that whole decaying wood thing. Or maybe it's just a reference to how the power in Kevin glows in the dark like a beacon to those sensitive enough to track it, like... Emil Grackleflint and the Umbra Sprite. 
This seems particularly ominous, like a firestorm of some kind rooted in Kevin's power, maybe ready to be unleashed. Or is this some kind of omen that Kevin is going to be engulfed by or venture into some literal inferno? After all, both of the Umbra Sprite's headquarters are named after Hellish Rivers, Rivers of the Underworld. Kevin goes looking for the magic eye drops so that he can follow the beast. But some nasty side effects catch up with him. He throws up twice, gets really shaky, and then, oops, moment number two, he passes out in the rose bushes. It's not a good turn for the character story-wise, but it's handled in a manner that comes across comedically, right down to the whoomp sound effect as Kevin goes down in the rose bushes, legs up in the air, like something from a Three Stooges or something like that. So, at a critical, just absolutely critical point in the action, Kevin is literally just pow, out of commission. And while Kevin is down for the count, we join the Umbra Sprite, busy monologuing and lecturing the Gracklethorns. An excited Carol comes into the office, informing them that the Bounty Hotline has received a call from an incubus uh, that has claimed their reward. And... We learn that what it is that caused the Incubus, the vampire, to go, whoa, when it fed off Magda, when it was feeding off of her, he absorbed her memories, which of course revealed her to be the Pendragon's wife. And as Carol says victoriously, we now know where they live, the names of their children, everything. At this point, the Empress Sprite orders that Magda is to be taken to their headquarters and left uninjured, that they will taunt and distract him with her taking advantage of his ultimate weakness, his love for her, which will surely prove his defeat. But in the meantime, they cannot give up looking for the Fisher King. Indeed, defeating Kevin may lead to the Fisher King retreating and going unfound. Throughout all of this, the Fisher King is the goal. Kevin is just an obstacle, the king's defender, if you will. And then we get an amazing look at the Umbra Sprite performing a summoning, reaching into one of the many red paintings on the wall, literally into some kind of dark fairy realm fish tank, its huge hand godlike above a variety of panicking nasties, until it comes down to grab one particular creature. And this is, this is so cool. Everything in the Umbra Sprite's office has a use. The fountain, uh, the black fountain that they drink from, uh, and that the Umbra Sprite emerged from after having to rest for about a year after the summoning of Arishkagel. The Maelstrom painting that seems to contain some major nasty awaiting its time to be called, and even these smaller pieces around the room. As it grabs this nasty from the painting, the Umbra Sprite states that it will tatter and ruin what remains of Kevin Matchstick's world. And with this ominous statement, we return to Kevin waking in the Rose Garden, the sun coming up, and Magda's green summoning butterfly that she sent out after him at the end of the previous issue, repeating her question, Kevin, where are you? Kevin, where are you? And Kevin goes zooming off, to get Hugo to his school bus in time, just to meet him at the school bus stop. But Hugo is worried. He says that neither his mom nor his sister Miranda were home when he got there this morning. And Kevin puts him on the bus, says, pretty much says, everything's going to be okay, and 
Oops, number three, he does a double take. The entire bus is filled with red caps. And I mean, look, whenever I put my daughter on a school bus, I feel exactly like she is at risk of something like this. Multiple grades of pretty much unsupervised kids confined into a small space and left to their own devices. It's like Lord of Flies on wheels. So Kevin just put his son onto a bus full of fucking red caps. These guys have been in the mage universe since day one. They're some of the first nasties he's faced. Constantly available cannon fodder. And speaking of cannons, Kevin goes running after the bus, only to have the red caps open the back door to reveal a fucking cannon, which they use to blast him with an energy bolt before he can catch up with the bus. Um, and ultimately, it disappears into the mists. Now, Kevin's panic kicks into high gear as he realizes the implication of Hugo's abduction by the red caps. And he goes running off to the house, which is bathed in mists. And he gets to the door in time for oops number four. And he is slammed back by this huge fist before the nasty inside the house literally tears it apart. And it's the same nasty which the Umbra Sprite summoned earlier from the painting. A big, green, wart-covered ogre or troll of some type and it sounds hungry. So, man, what an episode. This is this is really uh, the one where the shit hits the fan. Uh, you know, if it was an episode of Friends, uh, this would be the one where the shit hits the fan. After six issues of building up the tension, getting everything set up, waiting to see when the battle would begin in earnest, this is really where things start to kick into gear. I've got to say that the abduction of Magda... Hugo, and one might well assume Miranda, was something that I, and no doubt many others, assumed is a logical place for this story to go, but I never imagined it would be this early. That seemed like something that would happen at the end of a second act, to kick a third act and conclusion into high gear. Instead, here we are at the halfway point of the story, which leaves us a lot of room for twists and turns, even with this huge power play having already taken place. Now, all this time, the family, uh, Magda and Kevin, have been worried about Kevin's use of Excalibur, his power, and how it would alert their enemies to his location, to their location. And it's a bit ironic that his power ultimately has nothing to do with what reveals them to the Umbra Sprite. One could certainly say that Kevin's inability to focus in on his responsibilities and the family have put them all at risk since his absence at the school function is what leaves Magda completely vulnerable to the Incubus. But really, with a wolf like that in their midst, it would have only been a matter of time before slimy McToothsum discovered Magda and their secret. Still, it's going to be interesting to see what the next issue and the rest of this series holds. Is Kevin just going to go all smash him, bash him? I mean, really, he has literally no idea right now how to find his family. He has no place to take the battle. Much uh, as he's been through this series so far, I, I imagine that after the showdown with this troll, ogre, or whatever, Kevin will still be directionless. Either he's going to seek out help, 
Or maybe he's on the per verge of uh, some kind of epiphany, some revelation that will help him take the next step. It, it seems to me that Kevin needs a solution that isn't all smash and bash, but that might not be the one coming in the immediate future. For, forget the Fisher King. Rescuing his family is going to be job one. And, and frankly, was Miranda captured? She wasn't at home. Can we assume she was just captured off camera? Did she go to school directly from a friend's? We have no idea. First, Kevin has to take on this big ogre, troll, whatever, nasty. So there's going to be that fight. And what does it mean for their house? I mean, in the Misty Realms, the Fairy Realms, it's shattered to bits. It'll be interesting to see if this means anything in the real world, how or if at all it manifests. I'm sure Kevin's initial instincts will be to go to battle and to the rescue. And that might get him part of the way. But maybe not all the way. Really, it seems to me that he is, more than ever, in bad need of a mage or some kind of insight that will let him approach this from another angle. And I also have to wonder again, for all of the trappings of King Arthur in this series, are we seeing another overarching mythos, a third identity play out? Or is this third identity, is this all Kevin the, in the final culminating sequence of his story, not an echo of some past incarnation, but his and his alone. After all, Arthur would have been a reincarnation uh, of the same energy or spirit as Gilgamesh. That all accrues to Kevin. At some point, maybe Kevin just gets to stand in his own right with his own story, uh, rather than acting out some overarching mythological story. But, uh, but gosh, if he is, that'd be a lot of fun to see what it is when it finally comes together. Okay, so with that, there are two reviews, um, actually in a way three, that are absolutely must-reads. First of all, Michael Pencus over at Blackgate reviews, uh, his reviews of the series continue to be extremely thoughtful, uh, at times a bit dour in regards to Kevin's behavior, and given some of Kevin's behavior, I can't say his perspective is entirely unwarranted. I highly recommend reading all of these, but especially the reviews of issues 6 and 7. In the Blackgate review of issue number 6, Michael um, mentions how Kevin and Magda's um, argument about how he spends this time, and now I'm quoting, is a nice inversion of the first series where Kevin was so reluctant to abandon the mundane world to fight evil, and now there is simply nothing in the mundane world that can hold his interest. It's a neat point. And in the issue number seven review, among other ruminations, he comments, and this is a long quote, I know that the title is Hero Denied, and that implies some sort of defeat, but it is frustrating to see that Kevin still hasn't picked up some fairly simple life lessons that both Mirth and Wally tried to impart in Volumes 1 and 2. He's still basically fighting for the sake of fighting. He's still searching for the Fisher King, but it's doubtful he'll know what to do when he finally does find him. The villains have a very clear concept of what they'll do if they capture the Fisher King and go about it in a methodical fashion. Kevin, on the other hand, is just wandering around and hoping to run into a clue. He's frequently called the Pendragon, and addressed as if he's a modern-day incarnation of King Arthur, and yet we see precious little leadership coming from this man. 
Okay. And that's true. Kevin is not a leader. He went through that in The Hero Defined. He tried. He's not a leader. He is casting around for meaning and trying to fit into a world where he has denied his heroic calling and duty. Now, it could well be that the hero denied, as it implies, might mean some sort of defeat, but the hero denied also very well refers to Kevin casting off and denying his heroic path in raising the family. Um, I don't want to I don't want to give short shrift to raising a family and say it's a heroic endeavor in its own right, but it is not the heroic endeavor uh, as we typically refer to it and speak to it in regards to the comic book structure and in regards to the big, bad, nasty fight out there waiting. He is he is denied his heroic calling and his duty. He's, quite frankly, he's literally removed himself from the essence of his being, his power, for roughly ten years. And without a mentor, and let's be honest, it's not like Wally or Mirth have really given him any insight about what to do other than protect the light, pr- protect the Fisher King. Um, here's how you learn about a bunch of nasties that you're going to be facing. So what should he do once he finds the Fisher King? Bring him home, fix him a meal, offer him a place to stay under guard 24-7? I mean, that's not going to happen. So, great questions raised. Uh, We'll just see how things go. Over at the Fandom Post, Chris Beveridge comments about Kevin's pursuit of the questing beast, saying that, and there's a quote, It's a great sequence with just the look and the color of it as he sees the world at night in a really appealing way. But it's also an area where Kevin is being blinded to what he really needs to be doing. He's still so easily distracted that he loses sight of the things that are truly important to him. Chris then closes the review, stating that, quote, Now it feels like everything has changed dramatically, and Kevin will be in a mindset to do something that he hasn't before. And, as I asked before, just what is that? What, right now, is Kevin Matchstick capable of doing that he hasn't done before, or that will aid him in fulfilling his heroic role or saving his family or both? So far, he hasn't shown much inclination or ability to do much but gripe and complain against circumstance, either the persistent absence of a new mentor or his inability to express his heroic nature, with a few exceptions. Well, he still has no mentor. But he can't complain about trying to play some kind of domestic role anymore. But even with that restriction removed, it'll be interesting to see what he can do now, given this additional latitude and motivation. He's been reading and reading. Books don't necessarily have the answer. The mage is unlikely to suddenly appear all deus mechana, uh, or deus mechana, to help him sort it out. No. Kevin is going to have to figure this out all on his own, or swallow his pride and seek some damn help. But first it will be interesting to see how many stages of of the Kubler-Ross five stages of grief and loss he goes through. Kevin's always been fond of denial and isolation, as well as the second stage, anger, often in the shape of blaming others for his circumstances, 
and at the end of Hero Discovered, Mirth called him out on his bullshit. I wonder how long it will take for Kevin to own his responsibility for his role in the certain in, in, in the current circumstances, or will he just get stuck playing some angry blame game and desperate bargaining, the third stage, where people attempt to regain control of the situation through rationalization. If only I had done X, if only so-and-so had done Y. I mean, I think he might have to travel the whole damn way through denial, anger, bargaining, depression, before he reaches, finally, some kind of acceptance that allows him to own his shit, own his reality, and hopefully own a position of power from which to act purposefully instead of reactively, as he so often has in the past. Even better yet, maybe he doesn't overthink this, and this is just the impetus for him to simply take action. Not just fighting action, although the genre does sort of demand that type of action, but manifesting, planning out a direction. If nothing else, Having to save his family gives Kevin Matchstick something he hasn't had for a long time, a specific goal towards which he can direct his heroic action. That's very different than the constant, pointless, nasty battles that made him, well, if you look at the cover of Age uh, Hero Denied Issue Zero, that eventually led to him tossing in the shirt. Um, okay. So with that, I have to give a shout-out to Eli and Manus at the Can I Thwip It podcast. First of all, this podcast is hilarious. Episode 16, titled This Episode is Straight Fight, I think that's short for fire and tight, is hilarious and features the guys talking about everything from Spider-Man and Doctor Strange to DC's Sideways and, of course, Mage. Um, this issue, number seven. And they really get into it, including a weird little cool fact about the imp, that its face is in the shape of a two-horned pentagram, and that, in fact, the two-horned pentagram is the base shape of all demon heads. So, the more you know. Manus, get those back issues. I don't know how. Dip into Eli's long boxes or whatever. Get those hero-discovered and hero-defined issues out and just dig in, dude. Anyways, this podcast is so much fun. They even get into talking about Kevin's heroic incarnations as King Arthur, comparing his reincarnation cycles or incarnation of an energy force to the ongoing incarnations of Grendel. The magic is strong and green with these two. So green, I think you can almost smell green through the podcast. See the podcast notes or a website for a link to Can I Thwip It? All right. Also now, a quick look at the letter column. First, we get a thoughtful letter about friends and family from Wayne Wise. He makes a great prediction that, especially in light of this issue, that he fully expects the sanctity of Kevin's family to be threatened or challenged. But beyond this, he comments that he believes Kevin's real strength lies with them, his family, more than with the spark of Excalibur. Matt comments that years ago, Wayne wrote an entire entry about Mage for the Heroes and Superheroes section of the Salem Press Critical Survey of Graphic Novels. It's a great piece, and you can find a link to it in either the blog notes and on the MageTheHeroDescribed.com podcast uh, website post for this episode. Josh Deck also writes in 
with a drawing that he did of one of the Hob Squad members from issue number one, the floating woman-headed snake. To me, it's really evocative of late 90s, early 2000s Asian horror movies like Ringu, Cairo, and Ju-On. It's very creepy. And like Wayne, Josh voices his concern for the safety of Kevin's family, and it sounds like Miranda has his vote for a possible third mage. He notes that in the flashback dialogue with Mirth, Mirth emphasizes that he's merely a stage in Kevin's journey, and that he doubts he will really see Mirth until after the third mage is revealed. I'm inclined to agree. It would be interesting, although not entirely probable, to get to see all three mages together at some point. Justin Cooper's letter discusses the transition that Kevin Matchstick has made from a reluctant hero to a family man, and yet still a reluctant hero, and that Kevin looks and sounds more like him probably than any superhero out there. While Justin states that the hero denied is the first time that he's getting to read the mage story with the help of recently purchased trade paperback of uh, past issues, this seems to mirror a lot of mage fans who grew up with Kevin Matchstick, what they've been saying, and I think it gets to that everyman appeal of Kevin Matchstick. Honestly, with Kevin Matchstick, Matt created such a unique everyman hero that was so influential um, that I'm worried that the time for a mage movie may have passed. At least a time when it could have had maximum impact. Back when the mage movie was originally gearing up, the Marvel movie machine hadn't yet launched. Comic movies were still a rarity. And I'm concerned that against the backdrop of Marvel's shared universe mega movies, decades of comics that were at least in part inspired or influenced by Mage, whether directly or indirectly uh, influenced by people who were influenced by it, a Mage movie might come across to the general public and uninformed critics as being derivative of other every man stories that may have come after mage but reached mass public awareness before the mage movie it would be a cruel irony last of all there's a great letter from mark hamilton who has some very cool insights he mentioned that in each series kevin is dealing with some flaw in his personality that is holding him back from his journey in one, it was his cynicism and unwillingness to get involved. In two, it was his vanity and losing sight of the proper object of his quest. Mark holds forth that in three, it appears to be a selfish narrowness of focus, forgetting the larger struggle in favor of his people, his family. His highest good is now not to save the world, but to withdraw from it and obtain the perfect protection for him and his own. Mark points out that the Umbra sprite shares a similar behavior with its offspring, that when the Gracklethorns are eager to battle with Kevin, the Umbra sprite refuses, saying, I won't risk any of you against his power, that in some way the antagonist may have the same overprotectionist flaw as our hero. He has some equally interesting thoughts about how Emil Grackleflint in Hero Defined is guilty of the same mistake as his father in Hero Discovered both losing sight of their main goal in Hero Discovered and Hero Defined, respectively. One thing Mark says that caught my attention is his comment that Emil is caught up in his fancy robes and dreams of vengeance, in a manner similar 
to the mirrored behavior he sees in um, in Hero uh, in Hero Denied. Emil's focus, um, or, or in Hero Defined, Emil's focused on the trappings of his success, robes and vengeance seem to mirror Kevin's obsession with his own trappings of success, claiming leadership, and neither of them focused on the proper goal. We also get another conjecture about Miranda and her role as a possible mage here again. Um, what I really like about this letter column is that we've gotten into fans really discussing the work, not just in a sense of how happy they are about its return, which is great, or the personal impact the comic series has had on them, another great topic, no doubt. But now we're getting fans digging into the big questions, putting forward their observations, theories, you name it. So cool. Since we're halfway through, and people are playing the who's the mage going to be game, I'm going to say right now, with no real proof in hand, I have to wonder if it's Hugo. Matt mentioned in the past that Wally Out was inspired in at least in part by his father. And age-wise, we have seen the mage as an elder and as an adult. And the last remaining age stage as... I mean, it's just a logical conclusion. I also think it was uh, pointed out in um, the letter I spoke about in one of the last episodes... Um, by Jeff and Robin, the last remaining age stage would be a child. We've even heard Magda make the comment directly in reference to herself and Miranda that witch's magic is distinct and different from a mage. Now that might be a red herring, but I doubt it. Also, there's one last thing. Miranda, phonetically, is evocative of Matt Wagner's daughter's name, Amanda. Hugo is nothing at all like his son and mage hero denied colorist's name, Brennan. I'm wondering if there's some kind of Wally Ut or Utnabpishtim name game going on here that will later be revealed playing off the name Hugo, and even something as innocuous as the Hugo's Fort sign that hung out of Hugo's room early in the series um, may be a, a subtle sign as to that identity. I mean, I could certainly be completely way off base here, but it's just uh, just some random ideas I've been considering. Um, you know, over the years, you know, Matt has definitely talked about how, you know, Mage is... He does not write Mage until he is sitting down and literally writing it. So I'm not going to... Uh, I'm not going to conjecture too much here, but that's that's where I'm leaning towards right now. And uh, speaking of that, speaking of uh, Matt Wagner's process for writing Mage and, and all things Mage, be sure to check out the Hyper Room podcast featuring an hour-long interview with Matt Wagner that covers a lot of the creation of Mage, Matt Wagner's early career experiences as an artist, um, it even gets into his work routine, talks about the original Mage tour, that uh, that he and some uh, cohorts did traveling around the country back when Hero Discovered was first being published. He talks about his Zen-like process in creating Mage, uh, which he's mentioned at times, you know, in interviews over the past. But he really kind of digs in a little bit deeper this time, so it's neat to hear. And he talks about how he and his son Brennan collaborate as artist and colorist on the Hero Denied, and a whole lot more. It's a great interview. Check it out. 
see the podcast note for links. All right. That's this week's episode of Mage, the Hero Described podcast. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to join me next time when I'll review issue number eight. Again, if you have any comments or thoughts that you'd like to share, please visit magetheherodescribed.com where you can find instructions about the many ways that you can get in touch. You can also find past podcasts, links to reviews of Mage Comics, and um, I'll try to get some uh, of our Instagram gallery images and scenes uh, from items mentioned in the podcast integrated into the website. You can even subscribe for updates and notices when a new podcast or gallery or other content is published. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it through the usual social networks, and especially rate and review it on iTunes. It does really help other listeners discover the show. Thanks, and until next time, stay excellent.